we had this goal um, for Amsterdam Ave to be a little bit a bigger project for us. And originally we had it as a pilot. Um, we started writing. I think, you know, it changed so many times. And ultimately we refined it down to become what it is now, more of a six episode web series. Hello, and welcome back to South Asian Stories, where we hear from South Asians around the world and uncover their identities, successes, failures, and most importantly, stories. I'm your host, Samir Desai. In this episode, I chat with Pooja Tripathi. She's an Indian-American filmmaker, actress, and musician. She grew up in Pittsburgh and New York City and studied business administration and violin performance at Carnegie Mellon University. She began her career in the fashion industry, working in buying and digital marketing at top brands including Fendi, Bloomingdale's, as well as Dior. Pooja entered the world of film production as a producer of video content for video fashion, covering exclusive fashion events including the New York Fashion Week. Pooja brings her trained eye and marketing acumen from fashion into the world of film as the executive producer at female-based production company Fountain Avenue Productions, where she co-created the new Dutch-American dramedy series called Amsterdam Ave. Amsterdam Ave is a story about a Dutch and American girl switching places and following their dreams while living abroad. In this conversation, Pooja and I discuss how Pooja met her Amsterdam Avenue co-creator, Dion, randomly at a club in the south of France. The hilarious story of how Pooja had to source extras for one of the scenes in Holland, as well as Pooja's love for music and the creation of The Affairs, which showcases the next generation of talent in classical and jazz music in New York City. I really enjoyed chatting with Pooja. We chatted music, acting, and following your dreams, especially if it takes you abroad. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Pooja Tripathi. Pooja, welcome to South Asian Stories. We're so pumped to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Um, as we were talking before the the, the podcast started, Pooja has had an amazing breakfast. She's ready to go <laughs> and uh, ready to talk about her background and and everything between that. So let's just start with your childhood, Pooja. Um, I understand you grew up in Pittsburgh and New York City. Talk to us about your your childhood and growing up. Yeah, so I grew up. Uh, my parents were divorced, so I split my time. So I was half the time in Pittsburgh for school during the school year and then predominantly in New York um, during the rest of the time. And yeah, I grew up in a, not exactly the typical traditional Indian household um, because my mother, when she was growing up, she lived in Germany and Canada and she moved around a lot. So it, it's a bit different. Um, it, a bit I don't want to say watered down, but like we had some traditions and some things that, you know, were very Indian and then a lot that weren't. Um, and so I always kind of felt like a little confused, especially in Pennsylvania. You know, it's not really, I mean, there were, there are definitely a lot of Indian people, but I just felt different from those people because I didn't do all the typical things. I, I played violin. I didn't do Indian dance. You know, I didn't go to India every summer like a lot of people do. In fact, I went for the first time in college. So I just think it was a bit different than a lot of the other stories. Um, but I grew up thinking, you know, that I'd be a doctor. <laughs> um, I know it's not the most original thing, but it's just the, just the truth. Um, and I had like a doctor's card when I was like five years old given to me. Um, and yeah, I grew up, um, playing violin. That was, I was serious about that, but I always thought that this, that would be a hobby. And really my main thing would be one day I would become a doctor. And, um, at, at one point I had to volunteer, get some volunteering under my belt. And I was so freaked out by everything in the hospital. All I could do was play violin in the lobby. Like that's the only skill I could offer. And so that could have been a hint, but nobody took that as a hint. Right. And so I, I went on to basically do a year of pre-med. Um, I went to Carnegie Mellon and at that point, that's when I really was like, you know what, this has already been in the back of my mind for a long time that I don't think I want to be a doctor, but my mom is a doctor. My dad works in pharmaceuticals. It just was kind of expected. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I, I would justify it. I'd be like, you know what? It's okay. Maybe I could like get a job in New York and like 
go to restaurants and I would just try to find a way to like justify it. But then I'm like, no, I can do that in other ways. I don't need to do that by like working in medicine. Right. Um, but it was definitely that pressure. And of course, like a lot of other Southeast Asian households, it was very much like academics are really important. I, I just came to the discovery recently that I think I grew up in a pretty strict household. <laughs> I don't know why I just realized that now. But um, why do you say that? Yes. Well, I just think about some things that everyone else was kind of allowed to do and the things I was allowed to do. And I don't know, I was spending a lot of time working on my studies and practicing violin and I would always be splitting my time. So, so I didn't always know tons of people when I would go with my dad and I wasn't spending that much time necessarily with friends and def- certainly not partying, not in high school. Right. So, um, I think that equals strict. <laughs> So I want to touch on a few things you've said, which I thought are super interesting. I think every person or every South Asian person listening has that thing where like, I want to be a doctor or I want to be a lawyer or, or I want to do something else. And then they're like, wait, do I really like this? Or is this just societal pressure yeah. that's pushing me to do it? I remember I had my foray into uh, wanting to be a doctor and then I went to a medical terminology class and I was like, holy hell, <laughs> this stuff is too hard for me. Like I, I just, I just didn't click. And so after that, I was like, this is not the right thing for me. So I quickly switched. But was there a moment of realization for you where you're just like, okay, I really like violin. I like these other things. I don't love medicine. Like, was there a moment you remember? Well, it's funny because in high school, uh, my family, my parents were already trying to steer me that way by having me study Latin, you know, for the future MCAT. <laughs> and then like I studied Latin and I also took things like organic chemistry in high school. And I, oh my I God. was bad at that. I know it, it was really hard and I was really bad at it. I mean, I passed, but it was really difficult. And, you know, I was already having an inkling, like, I don't think I want to do this. And I would, and I would have these conversations, but you know, I think our families, they want us to be happy and successful. And they see this as a really viable career option that not only they see as stable, but also, you know, with my own parents working in that field, they probably thought, well, we can help you with this. This is something we can actually help you with. Sure. Because we have connections and, you know, we can share our knowledge. So I get it. But uh, yeah, we would have fights about it. And then they'd be like, well, what do you want to do? And that's the problem when you've been thinking your whole life that you kind of might put up with being a doctor. Um, you don't really allow yourself to explore what you might actually want it yeah, to. Yeah. So, and then when I did get to the point of being pre-med in college, and again, I only took like two chem classes and a bunch of like electives, and I, it was enough for me to know, at least academically, this is not my most, this is not my area of passion. But I, I did like a week-long shadowing experience in a hospital, um, only a week long. So that tells you something. And I was just so freaked out by everything. And there was a similar to your experience, a tumor board meeting meeting. Um, and it was like catered with some nice breakfast and I didn't really understand what we would be doing. And I had my nice breakfast and I was like ready to eat this bagel, like delicious. And then they put pictures of tumors like up on the, on the, on the PowerPoint. And I like gasped and dropped my bagel and they all thought it was hilarious, but I was like, this is, this is very right. gruesome. I don't, I can't do this. This is not for me. <laughs> yeah. And after that, I just thought, you know, I can switch to business because business is a bit vague. I can do this general area of study and use this time to figure out what I really want to do. Yeah, for sure. So you decide to switch. Um, I understand you studied business and violent performance. What was that like? Well, at Carnegie Mellon, they're really big on the whole arts and sciences thing. And I think that's part of the reason why I wanted to apply there because I was like, this is cool. I don't have to fully commit to the whole science thing. And I could, and they like that. So again, this could have been another sign if I had just, I just realized it, um, that I was more of a creative, but I, I think, you know, studying business, it was cool for me. I, I went to, I studied abroad in France and I loved that. And, um, I think a lot of the the most interesting things that I ended up doing in college didn't really necessarily touch upon my direct area of study. Um, it was more like, yeah, I minored in violin and I really loved that because the classes were so, they were so high level and interesting to me and I had been playing my whole life, but they just, 
taught me different skills that I really didn't have and I still use now in bands and stuff. So I loved that. And I really loved learning French and just finding new ways to keep going to France and study abroad there. Yeah. Um, which is in the end how I met the uh, my co-creator and co-producer who I work with now every day by chance. So Yes, tell us that um, story. Um, and like for everyone listening, this story, when I read about it, it was amazing to me. So I can't <laughs> wait for Pooja to tell it. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So I was studying abroad in France. And at the end uh, of the summer, I just decided to take an extra couple weeks to just travel a little bit. And I went to Saint-Tropez um, with a French friend who goes every year. And I, just in the club, happened to meet Dion. And um, in the club. I was there with her friends. In the club, yeah. So like, like, like pages the scene, like they're, they're, it's dark, you said champagne, mm-hmm. and then you're like, hey, this person looks interesting. <laughs> like, Let me go talk to uh, them. That, that, that would be very cute if that was ha- how it happened, but it was the first half, you set the scene perfectly. It's dark, champagne is flowing. Yeah. And um, then I, I was with my friend, Dion was with her friend and her brother, and her brother had his eyes on my friend, and he like started hitting on my friend. So our groups merged together. Yeah. And um, and then we, you know, honestly, I don't even think we really talked all that much. We just said, determined that I was in New York, living in New York, and Dion had always wanted to move to New York. And she heard that and was like, oh, that's really cool. So we talked a bit more. But we basically just added each other on Facebook then. And in, in, it kind of fell off for a little bit because she lived in the Netherlands. She's Dutch. And I lived, I was still in school in Pittsburgh. And we stayed in touch vaguely because she uh, was going to go to acting school. And Carnegie Mellon has a great acting school. So she reached out to me just to find out more about it. And Mm -hmm. ultimately, I ended up interning in fashion in New York when she was doing an acting summer program where we reconnected. Um, And after we both graduated, we both ended up in New York. She went full time to acting school and I was working full time in fashion. So, yeah, very roundabout. I would have never thought that would be how I would meet a person I work with every single day now. Yeah. So before you started work together, you worked in fashion. Tell us about that experience. Yeah. So while I was in college, I just thought I've always loved fashion. And it's a complicated thing, fashion, because you can love fashion, um, but it's very, very different. The thing you love is very different from what you'll actually be doing every day Mm -hmm. in one of these corporate more so retail jobs. Um, First of all, I was studying business, so it never occurred to me to do something on the creative side like styling, um, designing, because also there's no way I could have explained that to my parents. I also remember I just told them, you know, recently in that time that I didn't want to be a doctor. So now I'm going to tell them I want to be like a stylist. Like that's just too big of a job. They're going to be like the brains explode. What? (laughs) Yeah, it's like the brain exploding emoji. And it was like, no, I'm not going to get to that yet. Yeah. So instead, I was like, what can I do in fashion? And the things that I loved about fashion were really like the designs, like I would follow the runway shows and just see the evolution of every season after season, what the designers come up with and also just putting things together. I did love styling, actually. And um, so I thought, what can I do that uses my business degree? That's like, you know, explainable. And I can say what it is. And also I was looking for a level of prestige because, you know, there's also that if you're going to do an alternative career and especially in the Southeast Asian community, it's got to be like the most prestigious thing within that career. Mm -hmm. So um, for me, that was the Bloomingdale's buyer training program. Uh, So I was an assistant buyer at Bloomingdale's for the first year and a half. It was my first job out of school. And yeah, it was very corporate, very corporate. I was in the hosiery department. So for oh, wow. those of you who don't know what that means, that's literally tights, socks, leggings, like, and I eventually uh, expanded to intimate apparel. So underwear. And um, that was just, you know, really about the numbers. It wasn't creative. And so I was like, I don't really understand why I don't like this. I was supposed to like this. This is supposed to be a cool like fashion job, but I didn't like it. I ended up working at, after that, a production company, uh, which is, they cover fashion week. And I was a producer there doing interviews with the designers, models, editors. That was closer to what I wanted. It was really cool, but 
that company was just not the most stable and financially they would pay people very late. Um, it was just, it wasn't a very solid place to work long term. Mm -hmm. And I got freaked out by that. And I, it drove me back to the corporate world actually. And I think everyone was like applauding in the background, like, yeah, your 401k, it's going to be back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> and I was still kind of on board. I was like, you know what? Maybe Bloomingdale's was just, you know, not the right fit. Let me try another place. So then I worked at Dior. And um, again, I, I think, you know, at the time early in your career, you kind of look for these big brand names to validate what you're doing and to show, to prove you can get a covetable job. And so that when you go out, you can tell people, I work at this place. They all know what it is. But um, again, the reality just wasn't what I thought it would be. I worked in digital marketing and there were definitely some interesting aspects. But as time went on, you know, the, the atmosphere at some of these brands isn't always the best because there's so many girls lining up for these jobs. You're pretty disposable. And um, on top of that, I just started to think more about the bigger picture of the things that I believe in and my values. And, you know, I became vegan. And I just was thinking, first of all, this is a brand that animal tests. So mm -hmm. I'm working so hard and stressed out just to promote a product that doesn't even isn't even in line with my ideals. And there's a lot out there that, you know, that is even within beauty and fashion. So I was like, first of all, there's that. And then I was also on the side, kind of working with Dion and we were already writing scripts together. Um, that's kind of a creative outlet. Uh, that was how I saw it back then. And we had discussed at some point, you know, working together and me quitting my job and going the full way. But, you know, that's a tough thing to do. That's basically deciding you're going to be a full-time creative and you're not going to have that cushion of a corporate job. And so I probably would have waited a lot longer if the atmosphere hadn't gotten so toxic. Um, there was just, you know, a bad apple in, on the team and it caused a lot of people to leave. And this person was eventually fired too. Um, but at the time it was just like, I cannot stay here another day. And I quit in the middle of a meeting. It was really dramatic. turns oh, out people wow. don't do that. Yeah. I, in the movies, people do it. But uh, when I would tell the story after I Did learned, you throw the nobody table? does. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it sounds so badass now, but in the moment it was like very traumatizing. I, I was like, I can't believe I did that. That was so scary. I got all my things. I went to HR, like, and I just left after telling HR. What was the situation? So, Can you talk about it? Yeah, basically, um, there was, a, I would say, a boss who was a bully and who was just kind of, you know, had a target at all times. And that was the person that was being bullied. And the thing is, I wasn't that person for a long time. I replaced a person who was fired and, um, you know, probably had a similar experience. And I, I just kind of avoided it in the beginning because, this, you know, if you have some people you're mean to, you also have to have some people on your team you're nice to, to make it look like, you know, okay to upper management. And so I just was on the right side of that in the beginning. But, um, you know, after a while, there's only so many people on the team. And once they quit, you're going to be next. Yeah, and so I was next. next I, yeah. And I wasn't sleeping. I, I was like, so anxious, not eating properly. And I was just like, all of this to sell lipstick? Like, I just don't care anymore. And I don't know why I'm do putting up with this, of course, for a paycheck. But other than that, like, why put myself through this? I want to do something I really care about that actually reflects my ideals and that I really enjoy doing and that I can put everything into and yeah. not just do because of validation. Yeah. Dude, Pooja, that's courageous. Like, I can, I can imagine yourself kind of vulnerable in that state where you're like not being treated well by a boss, make a snap decision to leave. When you yeah. got home, what was that like? Was it like, holy cow, what did I just do? Walk <laughs> us through what it, that, what that was like. Well, I was lucky in the sense that I had already been working with Dion for a while and we had already done a couple episodes of another web series we created. It's a vegan musical comedy web series called Kombu Cha Cha Cha. <laughs> so it's really silly and fun. And we had already been doing that, but we had plans to work on Amsterdam Ave. We had ideas for it. Um, they weren't fully fledged yet, but we were talking long-term about plans to make a TV show together. And actually I remember one particular time when we were sitting in a restaurant and Dion was like, you have to really think about if this is something that you want to do, this would be a career shift for you. Like if you're serious about this, you know, and and that hit home for me because I was like, okay, that is really true. I need to think about this. And 
it shouldn't just be that I'm running away from a job. It should be that I'm running towards something I really want to do. So we had already been having those conversations, which is lucky because I had some time to already go through this in my mind. And I feel like the two of us had decided we wanted to work together. We worked together really well. And every night I was going after my job, I was going straight to Dion's place so we could keep writing or producing or whatever it is we were doing that day. Um, I was also in contact with my mom a lot, you know, trying, trying to explain what was going on. And so it was, it was kind of leading up to it. Maybe the couple weeks I was thinking a lot about it, but still I thought I could hang in there a couple months. I didn't know how quickly things would escalate mm -hmm. literally the day after the other victim left. It was me next. So after I quit, I just couldn't, I was honestly scared. I was really, I had this irrational fear that like my boss, I would run into her or she'd like show up. She was scary. <laughs> so, and this is irrational because of course somebody's not going to show up at your apartment or, but it's just when you're in this mindset of being so anxious and nervous and you yeah. have like a lack of confidence for being treated a certain way. Yeah. Um, you just get into this weird mindset. And, and so I was scared. And I, then I was, after being scared about that, I was scared about the future, um, about what to do next. Dion was wait, I had to wait for her visa, um, her American visa. So she had to go to Holland and wait for that. And so I just went with her. So, um, within a couple of weeks I was in the Netherlands and I just kind of got out of the city and, I think that was really good too because it was a break. It was completely different scenery and vibe than, you know, my corporate job and my whole life. And mm -hmm. there we could basically work on learning more about film and start doing projects in Holland and just get our feet wet and get started without the judgment or questions of all the people around you who were like, why would you ever leave a job at like a luxury fashion brand? <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. And sometimes, um, getting a new start, a reset is just the thing you need. And I'm sure when you look back now, you're like, wow, I needed that at that time to get to where I am right now. Did you? Oh, definitely. So let's talk about Amsterdam Avi. Like, I know you mentioned that you had the Genesis. It. I think it's so cool that you were working on it every night, production, writing with Dion. How did it transpire from there? Yeah, so basically we had done this other series, but we had this goal um, for Amsterdam Ave to be a little bit a bigger project for us. And originally we had it as a pilot. Um, we started writing. I think, you know, it changed so many times. And ultimately we refined it down to become what it is now, more of a six episode web series. Um, we, we really thought for a long time about what was going to be the most compelling version of the story. In the beginning, it started as, okay, we live in New York city and our friends come from all over the world. Yet when we see shows, it's always from an American perspective, it's getting a little bit more diverse. It's not where it needs to be, but it's getting there, but it's still always from the American expect, uh, perspective when there's so many expats and immigrants and people coming from all over, especially to live in a city like New York. Yep. Um, there's so many people like that. So we thought the foreign perspective is something a lot of people can relate to. So it kind of started out more as just that. Um, and then we developed it and developed it. We thought, you know, we didn't originally have the idea for the house swap where, because basically in the show, um, we have an Indian American character, Karen, played by me. She works in fashion in New York, but she aspires to be a DJ. And then Dion's character is Dutch Surinamese. She lives in Amsterdam, but she aspires to be an actress. So the two of them switch places. They do a house swap to follow their dreams. And originally, we were, we didn't know yet we were going to do it in both countries. It seemed like a lot. But we just thought we want to make this unique. We want to pull out the best parts of the story. And we want to showcase the fact that being that she's Dutch and I'm American, we have these specific perspectives. She knows what it's like to be Dutch in Holland, also to be a Dutch expat living in New York. Mm -hmm. um, and I know, obviously, like from an American perspective, what it's like to live here and go abroad. And, you know, you see you see in a lot of shows, like in Master of None, um, Dev goes to Italy, and you see that a lot in shows, but it's usually more of like a fun vacation or, you know, it's not so much expat life where they're really deciding to build their life there and fit in and assimilate. So we decided that those were like the most interesting parts of the story. And Amsterdam is a really cool city that everyone loves in the U S uh, but it's not seen so much on screen yet. And with the Brexit, lots of people are 
going to Amsterdam, it's getting more and more international. So these were kind of the building blocks of like how we laid down the foundation of the show. Yeah. Um, and then the writing process took a long time. It took, uh, I would say at least a year from beginning to production. Uh, and we did a lot of renditions, lots of edits. We had a script doctor who helped us pose questions about, you know, would this character really do this or would this thing really happen and made us think about, you know, what the best version of the story would be. Yeah. And, and uh, a couple of, couple of questions on that. So while you were writing it, a year to write it is a long time. How did you mm-hmm. keep yourself motivated through that time? How did you um, push yourself to get through the lows and the, I'm sure you had highs as well, but talk us through that. So yeah, that was definitely a difficult part because at that time you don't have anything tangible to show people yet. Um, now it's a lot easier because we have the show and we've actually created it. It's released. Um, but at that time, yeah, you have a script, but you're not going to email people that script. It's changing all the time. And that would just be a very stressful thing to do. Email everyone the script to prove you're really doing something, you know? So, um, and at the same time I had different side jobs. I had like some, pretty absurd. I had one where I was kind of processing returns for like an online retailer. Um, so I was like stressed about, you know, getting that done. And it, it was, it was definitely hard, but we, we did work on a relatively short time frame considering everything we did. Mm-hmm. And, um, even though we did take a long, you know, that's kind of from beginning to end. That's like when we first started writing the pilot version and, mm-hmm. and in between we did other projects. We did um, a short film for an art, ga- a art gallery in Holland. Holland. Um, we did, you know, we did kombucha, our other series. We kind of did different work that kept us going um, at the same time. But then at one point we really hunkered down and worked on writing the six episode episode version of Amsterdam app. And yeah, during that time it was, it helped a lot to having having a writing partner. Um, we just held each other accountable, made sure that we were making progress. We we created deadlines for ourselves because we thought if we're going to produce this early 2019, then we need to have the script ready because it's going to take a while then to produce and hire crew and cast the actors. So there was a lot to do and it was concrete steps. So it really we could feel the feel that we were making progress. And I think that helped a lot. And just discussing everything with each other helped a lot too. Yeah. And what uh, I'm curious to know, because you have two different cultures, American and Dutch, what did you learn about the Dutch culture that was surprising to you? And what do you think Dion learned about American that she was like, what? I didn't know you guys did this or thought this way. Oh yeah. I learned a lot because the summer before, before I had spent in Holland. So yeah. that helped a lot. And we stayed with Dion's family. They're Dutch. And, um, I feel like I was really immersed in the culture and I learned a lot about it. I learned for one thing, you know, in the U S it's very normal for us to hear about people moving to New York. It's not a big deal. Of course, because of, you know, if you're an American citizen, you don't need a visa, but even beyond that, it just feels more accessible to us. Cause a lot of people do that and move to the big cities within the U S in Holland. It's really considered, a huge deal to move to New York. It's, it's very difficult to do. Um, but it's also just a place that people think of as like, Whoa, that's so crazy. You live in New York. And, um, I think the Dutch mentality is often, there's this saying there it's called do normal. And it means, um, be normal because you're already crazy enough as you are. And the, the culture is really kind of, you want to fit in, you want to do things the normal way. Um, standing out is not as celebrated the way that it is in the U.S. where everyone's like a big personality. Mm-hmm. The personalities are a bit more subdued there. Even when I was there, like there were a lot more moments of silence. People weren't chattering away all the time. And I felt like such a chatterbox in comparison. Yeah, blah, blah, um, blah. Because, <laughs> yeah, so literally that's how I felt. So um, it's just a difference in culture. You know, it's, it's more... Um, Dion's dad attributes it to Calvinism because, you know, in the history of Holland and just keeping people in, you know, in, in order and everyone doing things the normal way and having your family and having a good job. And, and it's also, you know, because of the political, you know, the, the setup of Holland and just the fact that you have everyone has health insurance, like just the way that the country works, it's very organized. It's the public transportation is very clean. It feels a lot less chaotic than New York and the U S and I feel mm-hmm. like people there, you know, 
it feels more like clockwork in the sense, the way that things work there. People are probably more likely to be on time or be early. Um, things just work a certain way. You go to the grocery store and there's all these convenient, smart, fresh solutions. And it just feels like everything is very efficiently done there versus here where it's a bit more chaotic and, you know, people are scrambling, I feel a lot more. So, and on the quality, it's like the quality of life on, on the whole is higher, but it's harder to stand out and do something really huge or really crazy. Um, like make your own show. Yeah. And then, (laughs) I think for Dion, you know, that was a lot of the appeal of the U.S. for her because she had these really big dreams that were unusual um, for, you know, Holland, I guess. And there is a good, you know, a film industry in Holland, but she really wanted to go to the American film industry. And I think she felt like it was freeing, you know, that people had these big personalities. But on the other hand, also sometimes a lot, because if, you know, you come from a kind of a more introverted type personality country, let's say if Holland had to have a personality, it would be a little more subdued. Mm-hmm. Um, so then coming into rooms full of actors and acting school, I think is a lot, you know, there's a lot of people with big personalities and, um, and things don't work as easily. Like there's a lot of difficult, you know, just taking the subway and all the crazy things that can happen. And I think it's just not quite as organized and set up the way that Holland is. Um, yeah, there's a lot of, they have a Dutch saying, tall trees catch a lot of wind. And it means like, if you do something super out of the ordinary, you're going to get a lot of shit for it basically. Yeah. And so I saw that Dion, of course, that's more her experience, but I saw, I could totally see what she means with that. Um, it's so like the analogy of like the, the nail is too long. We get hammered down. Right. Yeah. Similar to that. So it's a very different culture. I feel like it's hard to tell sometimes because it's just a Western European country. It's not like an Asian country where we know for sure it's very, very different from the U.S. But but it is still, I think, quite different. So like talk me through filming in Holland. Like you finish your year writing the script, you start to film. Have you... Mm -hmm. What is it like going to a different country, figuring that out and starting to film that part of the show? Like, I'm sure that's wild. It is wild. Yeah. So we basically only had the two of us, Dion and I as producers, which is really only like one and a half producers because one of us was always in the scene. Um, We're not in any scenes together, which meant that whoever isn't in the scene is basically that producer for the day. Um, But leading up to production, we did, you know, weeks of pre-production, not a lot of time considering we had to do it in two countries. Um, And my character basically moves from the U.S. to Holland. So a lot of my scenes were in Holland. And that was definitely, you know, we used local crews. So it was, everybody was speaking Dutch and I don't speak Dutch. And um, there they work differently in Holland versus New York. They're less used to kind of going crazy, super, super, super long hours with low pay and low budgets. Like in New York, there's all sorts of low budget projects happening and it's a little bit more common. Uh, but there, you know, they have a little bit of a higher standard of living, which is good, but it's a difference. And for me, I mean, I just felt super lucky because already it's awesome to be able to create a show, but then also to be able to, act in these scenes that are taking place in Holland and it's so beautiful there. And we had some awesome actors who were actually kind of famous in Holland. They're on a soap opera that's really, really popular. They're called GTST. And we had two actors from that show and everyone was really talented. Also, I, another thing I was pretty nervous about was I haven't had an acting background. I didn't go to acting school or film school. Mm -hmm. So I'd previously, I mean, I was in the importance of being earnest in high school, but I don't know if that really is that really on your IMDb and, chart. <laughs> it's on my acting resume because I need it on there. Yeah, for sure. But it's not on IMDb. It didn't make it to IMDb. <laughs> but yeah, I had only really acted in our own projects before, and they were not of the scale of Amsterdam Ave. And it just felt like, wow, there's a lot going into this. There's the whole crew. There are actors who've been doing this for years and years. I just want to make sure no one can tell. Like, I don't want them to be like, who is this? Yeah. Who's, imposter syndrome. You know, imposter syndrome. Exactly. So they couldn't tell. Actually, there was a moment when one of the actors 
asked where I went to acting school or he said like something like, oh, yeah, education in the U.S. is so expensive. I bet your acting school was really expensive. And I was like, oh, my God, he thinks I went to acting school. I loved it. It felt, you know, very good. But I just at one point thought if I worry about this and get too in my head, I'm not going to do a good job and I need to just go and do it. There's no time to think about it. Be free. Play free, exactly free and loose. Yeah. Um, I want to touch on the story you talked about of getting extras. Can you tell that story? I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny. We had some pretty big challenges in creating the show because, again, two producers, two countries. It was a lot. And there were some some days that, you know, something that doesn't necessarily seem like it would be that big of a deal for a scene, it could be a huge deal and really make or break that scene. We had some club scenes for Kira and my character because she's a DJ. So there was a competition scene. She, she's in a DJ competition and then, you know, she plays some gigs. And for those scenes, it's really important to have a full club because otherwise, story-wise, like what does that mean if there aren't that many people there? Doesn't mean that it's not at a popular club. Like you don't want that to affect the story. Mm-hmm. And um, we had confirmed like 100 extras. I mean, we thought we were good. And we get there and, you know, only I think 12 or 13 of them showed up. It was crazy. And I was acting that day. So Dion was really the one producing and she had to, she just had to somehow figure out how to get people there while also dealing with everything else going on that day. It was really a lot producing wise. And she's the translator, right? She speaks the language. Yeah, she's also, and that's the other thing too that was interesting about being in Holland, even though I was producing too sometimes, it was just, they would look to Dion because she's the one who's Dutch, she speaks Dutch, and they would just immediately go to her. And I think that put an extra weight on her shoulders there because, mm-hmm. yeah, she's the one who can kind of navigate things. And um, and so she called, uh, like, last minute a casting agency that ended up sending all these people, and a lot of them were elderly. So... You know, like that's kind of weird for a club to have like a group of elderly people. But then we had to be respectful, polite. We also just needed people. And we were just like, what do we do? Like, can we kind of position them in the back? Like, what do we do? And at one point, Dion actually also became an extra. She put on this hoodie and just turned another way, looking like a shady person at a club, but just so that we would have like an extra warm body there. And so it was super stressful. It kind of teaches you the importance of like, these little details that seem small, but you know how significant a detail is when it's when it's missing. For sure. Um, that's looks, like when you look. It looks off. You're like, hey, like you didn't think about this in your pre-production, but when you get there, you're like, wait, this feels off and I need more people here in this club to make it feel like a club. Exactly. And should we, we got, they got people from the restaurant, like just recruited them from tables. We like did everything possible. And and then the end, Dion managed to produce like enough extras. And it's pretty crazy because now when you see those, those uh, scenes, it looks pretty full. And, you know, our, our, our cinematographer is also very talented. She managed to place people a certain way, but yeah, it it was pretty crazy in the end. And for me, you know, acting in that scene, um, I wasn't really able to help out with the producing side, but I kind of also being a producer, could sense and could feel like this is a super stressful thing. And so it was just nerve wracking standing there being like, Oh my gosh, I hope it's going. Okay. I hope that they're managing to find people. And it's just, when you wear a lot of hats, it's, it can be kind of a lot. These things pile up all the duties. For sure. So Pooja, talk to me about you finish up your last rap hits and you're, you're done filming for the show. How did you feel? Was this a sense of gratitude, fulfillment? Was that a high in your life? Like, talk to us through that. Honestly, the very first thing I felt was like pure exhaustion because <laughs> we had filmed, so we had shot eight days straight in Holland and then we flew back to New York. We had a couple weeks of pre production, not a long time. And then we shot nine days straight. Um, and that was, you know, that was we had to do it that way because we had a lot of constraints. We were low budget. We had scheduling constraints of our director who was here in the U S but our cinematographer was coming in from Holland. So that was really the only way we could do it. But nine days straight, basically around the clock, because even when it would be the end of the day, Dion and I had to 
figure out the props that for the next day, get the costumes, make sure the catering was done, make sure everyone was, you know, producing stuff. So by the end, we just had so little sleep. I think we were just completely exhausted and it took a couple of days. Yeah. To let everything really sink in. But I think, you know, once we started looking at the footage, we were like, wow, I can't believe we made all this stuff up in multiple countries. And some of these scenes we made up are pretty hard to produce. And now here it is. Like we actually managed to do it. And I think it was kind of a sense of relief, but then very quickly after the relief, you know, we had to go into post and Dion edited the whole thing herself. And, you know, of course, yeah, she, she just taught herself how to edit, um, over the past couple of years by doing our other projects, our other short films and, and series. And, um, cause she also didn't go to film school, just acting school and business. And so, yeah, the, uh, other, the director, Amanda, she and I, we would put in our say, you know, we would say like, Oh, what we think about each scene. And, but at the end of the day, she was the one driving. She was doing, she was doing all the drafts, the second draft, the third draft manually. She was the one who knew how to edit. Yeah. And so that was a lot, a lot to kind of, look forward to. And then at the same time, while she was doing that, I was setting up our marketing tour because we did um, a whole tour of about 23 screenings in many cities, um, Chicago, New York, San Francisco, Amsterdam. And so while she was doing all of that, I was setting up these screenings and basically partnering with people because we had no budget left. Um, So we had to figure out ways that our show would you know share some sort of values with these companies um, or schools so that they would want to partner with us? And in, in the end, we ended up uh, doing screenings at the LinkedIn headquarters, the Dutch embassy, oh, wow. the Scholastic headquarters in New York. Yeah, we did one at Carnegie Mellon where I went to school, Soho House. So we had a lot of really awesome screenings, but that took a whole summer to set up while Dion was editing. So we pretty quickly went right into the next thing. We probably could have enjoyed it for like, I think we spent one day enjoying it. We were in Central Park and we just felt guilty the whole time because we were like, we should be working. We have a lot more to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, no, that's good. Like, I think taking a day just to say, this came up from our, our heads and now we have it on our screens. Like, that's a big deal. And the amount yeah. of work and time and effort and stress and tears and everything you put into this and seeing the final product, I think as a creative, that's just a massive undertaking a massive like wow moment when you see it um give yeah. us a preview of where are you guys now with the, the show like what's can you give us a sneak peek uh peek under the tent of what's the plan or what's next for you guys yeah for sure so basically we want our biggest goal is to follow in the footsteps of other series that kind of started on youtube or vimeo that ended up being picked up by a streaming platform so there's a lot of at this point, quite a few series that have done this. High Maintenance on HBO is one of them. Insecure on HBO. Um, Broad City started out as a YouTube series. So did Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Uh, there's actually an Indian show called Little Things, which started out as a web series and is now a Netflix original. So there are quite a few people that have managed to do this, and that's our goal. So now that we're done releasing the six episodes, which they're all on YouTube now, um, we're really focusing on the next steps in terms of how to get distribution and partner with a streaming platform to create a second season. So that involves a lot of things. That involves obviously a lot of networking, going to industry events, telling people about our project as loudly as we can, doing press. Um, And we are our own publicists at this point. We reach out on our own. I reached out to you. It's kind of that's how we find people. And it, that's kind of the theme of the whole project. We just kind of figure out what to do and just do it. If we don't know somebody's email address, we piece it together using like the email format and the first and the last name and just yeah. guess it. BCC um, everything. We just, that, <laughs> yeah. We just try to find ways to reach these people. And so we're really working on that. We're still um, – doing some screenings. So more in the area, we're doing screenings with universities and collaborating uh, with other groups. We're going to do a screening soon with Third Eye Collective, which is a group for Southeast Asian women creatives in New York. Uh, So we're just expanding our networks and within the industry as well. And, you know, we're looking for agents, managers, all of that, uh, both in Holland and here in New York. So we're just trying it all, seeing what hits and we hope to be picked up. 
Pooja, that's amazing. I just, I can't help but admire your hustle and just your ability to say, hey, I don't know how to do this, but I'm just going to do it anyway. Like literally right. starting with, you know, acting, you have no acting experience. I'm just going to do it anyway. Writing, producing, publicizing, like all those things are not easy for many people. And you just feel like you're just jumping in with two feet, which I think is incredible. Thank you. Well, it's interesting when you look at all of us have different backgrounds, but there are a lot of transferable skills that you don't necessarily realize are so transferable. Sure. Like in my corporate jobs, you know, I learned how to speak the jargon of corporate America. I learned how to be organized and efficient and get a lot done in a day with high yeah. pressure stakes. And I learned a lot about uh, branding and marketing because I did work in digital marketing. And I think using some of those same principles and just trying to apply them to your own brand where you care so much because Amsterdam app is also a brand, you know, it's a whole world. It's, we want the same voice for the social media, the same voice for the show itself. Um, our newsletters, all of it. And that's something I learned from my corporate jobs. And I think along the way you just pick up a lot of stuff and it's, if it is your own project, you do feel so invested in it that you're just like, whatever, I can learn this. And it helps to have a partner too, because you can bounce ideas off each other and just check in. And to your point earlier about taking a moment to be happy about the exciting things, I think I heard, I forget who it was, but I heard a podcast recently where somebody in film, someone like maybe Lena Dunham or someone was talking about how they just need to remember to take that moment and be like, wow, I got way too used to this really, really exciting thing way too quickly. And I need to remember this is a moment to celebrate. And so I feel like Dion and I are trying to do that. We're weekly trying to think about, okay, what are some of the good things that happened this week? Some of the yeah. really exciting things we've already forgotten about because we're too worried about the next thing. Right, right. Like take a step back and say, hey, look how far we've come, right? If you exactly. look at like day to day, it doesn't feel like a lot, but week to week, month to month, year to year, <laughs> like holy cow, look at all the progress we made. Man, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. I and in the production process too, we had. Oh, sorry. Oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, um, in the production process, too, we had all these mini wins along the way, too. At one point, we uh, sent our script to Catherine Curtin, Curtin who is a Netflix. You know, she's been on a lot of shows like Orange is the New Black, Stranger Things, Homeland, Insecure. And she agreed to be in the project, even though it was super low budget, because she loved the script. And that gave us a lot of confidence. And then our music directors, Coco and Breezy, they're a DJ twin entrepreneur duo. And they're also models. And um, they have a presence in New York and they're on billboards everywhere. And so when they agreed to be the music directors, also, again, we had basically no budget. And every time we had more people attaching themselves, we were like, okay, this is a good project. We're getting yeah. somewhere. And it validates other it. see the vision. Mm -hmm. That is so cool. I, um, I also want to touch on something non-work related. And you mentioned that you, um, work on the affairs. Can you talk to you? us about that and how you're involved yeah yeah so I grew up playing violin and it was always a really big part of my life I still play in orchestras sometimes I play in jazz bands or indie bands but another way I found to kind of keep connected with the whole music scene was by creating an event series which I had always been kind of throwing these events even since college um, and a lot of people would come it would just be something a little more you could dress up for it and it was, it just became kind of a thing, but it was never an official event series. And at one point I thought, you know what, what I could just pump this up to the next level. I had the idea cause I was preparing for an audition with, um, a, my violin teacher at the time. Who's his name is that viola kid on Instagram. He's like an Insta famous violist. And, um, we came up with this idea of, you know, he said, oh, I have trouble getting cool gigs in the city sometimes, even though, you know, they've all gone to Juilliard. These are artists who are really amazing. And, very musically talented. And I was like, well, I throw events. What if I have an event and just invite performers and have it be ticketed instead of free? So I tried it out for the first time. I had a string quartet all from Juilliard and it was on a rooftop in New York and people loved it. And, uh, I broke even easily. And I was like, you know what, this is actually really cool. People really like this. Wow. So I just kind of kept it up and at this point, I do three or four events per year. One one of our events featured a harpist. One of our events was um, a jazz band, a jazz duo, another time. So every time it's something different. And it's just an awesome way for me to 
keep connected with the arts yeah. and create these events that I would love to attend myself if I was on the other side. Um, and it's also a nice way to just stay connected with other people too. I think people meet each other during these events and it's invite only. So, um, it feels like a close knit community. Yeah. I think that's amazing is creating something that you wish you had yourself, I think is an amazing way to just, you know, bring more value to the world. Like, I love the fact that you're like, Hey, I would love to attend this event. I'm good at, I, I, I know these people. I know these venues. Let me put this all together and package it up. Like that is entrepreneurship in its purest form. Um, right. How do you get the word out? You said it's invite only, but like, how, how do people know about it? Yeah. So until now, I think, um, I had this base of people from college who would always attend my parties then when they were not what they are now. And, um, a lot of them moved to New York and it is true that sometimes they move away and you need new people, but people can refer their friends. They can invite their friends. And, uh, over the years, people bring different friends and sometimes, you know, there'll be someone who comes and they love it and they love the music and then they bring their friend Word of mouth is really kind of how I've done it. Uh, I also used to be a member of the Young Patrons of Lincoln Center, and I met a lot of people there who are similarly very interested in classical and jazz. So I invited some of them to the events. And anytime I he- you know, I meet a person and it seems like they might be interested, I, I kind of tell them about it and um, and I invite them. And I let it kind of run its course naturally that way because – yeah, it's not something I want to put super intense marketing efforts into because I feel it would take away from the intimate feeling sure, of the event. For sure. Like, I heard a great quote that's like, some things are not meant to scale, right? And like, right. these are one of those things that, yes, you, you know, break even, which is important, but it's all about the appreciation of the music and with the like-minded people. Like, that is the beauty. That's where you get the energy from. Yeah, exactly. And people, sometimes when they attend these events, I hear people say things like, wow, this just, this was like the highlight of my month or, you know, they just, I don't know, you can get so caught up with things. And, and for classical and jazz music too, it's not always so accessible. Like it is at these events, I always do a 30 minute set, but beforehand it's, it's always a young artist and they describe the piece they're going to play. They talk about their instrument and they just make it fun. And you're allowed to use, you know, your phones, you could take Insta stories, you could take Boomer, do whatever you want. And everyone is so respectful. They all stand very quietly during the performances. And at the same time, they're allowed to use everything. They, you know, it's not like going to Lincoln Center necessarily and sitting front row and not being able to. It's just a different culture. I feel like it's more youthful and yeah. maybe brings classical music off of this pedestal of it's for old people or it's for fancy people or whatever. No, it's it could be for anyone. And when you know a little bit about the pieces and you just sit, you can really appreciate more about the pieces. And I think it's relaxing. Right. And I think about the story of, um, you know, the YouTube video of like a famous Juilliard uh, violinist or someone who plays like the New York Symphony, plays in the subway versus plays in the, uh, you know, in the, in the, in the concert hall. And sometimes just the venue brings out so much. Like the fact that you said that, you did it on a rooftop just adds so much, um, you know, flair to something that as if it was in a different space, it could be totally different. So I love that you think about that as well. Yeah. I just figured, you know, New York has it covered when it comes to like amazing institutions of music. I don't need to create, you know, no, something like that because that experience can be easily found at Lincoln Center or, you know, yeah. you know, Carnegie Hall. So I figured this is something different. It's a way for people to get dressed up and have fun with their friends, but also appreciate some awesome music that they probably wouldn't necessarily hear otherwise, or at least not that often. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Cool. So I uh, want to switch to our rapid fire questions. And again, these are questions that we ask all our interviewees and we've gotten some amazing responses. So I'd love to hear Pooja, what you think about a few of these. Um, yeah. First question is, is there an item that you've brought bought recently that has dramatically improved your life? It can be big or small, but something that has you think about, you're like, wow, I'm really, really glad this is a great purchase. Hmm, that's a good one. Um, this is, this is something different. It's a gift I got, uh, on my birthday, um, a ukulele. Oh, nice. <laughs> it was just like, 
Yeah, it's just so cute. And, you know, I've been playing violin my whole life and I'm serious about it. But ukulele is so silly and fun and it's easy to learn a couple easy chords. And of course, you can get very advanced with it, but there's no pressure because it's not it just feels like another instrument that's just like chill and fun. You could play chords, which you can't really do in the same way on the violin. You could like sing songs. And um, it's, I don't know if I would say it improves my quality of life, but it's super fun and I love yeah. having it and playing around with it. What is the, your favorite thing to play on it? Well, Dion and I uh, actually for kombucha cha cha did a couple veggie covers of popular songs. Oh, so, man. you know, we, yeah. And we use the ukulele. They're all, they're Instagram videos on our Instagram, but um, we did a cover of million reasons uh, and we changed to million reasons to be vegan. And we just kind of like, we did a cover of um, ring of fire, Johnny cash, and we changed it to spicy jalapeno. So it's just super silly, but really fun. And honestly, at this point, I remember our own lyrics better than the actual songs themselves. And so I like playing those songs. And I also just know the chords now because we made those videos. So I like doing something I know. Burning your head now. That's that's awesome. Very catchy. These songs are catchy. I'll definitely check it out. That's that's awesome. Um, Second question is – when you think of a South Asian person you look up to, who would you say comes to mind and why? And it could be in your industry, it can be outside of your industry, but what comes to mind or who mm-hmm. comes to mind? Well, I just recently, I know I'm a little late to this, but I just recently watched Hasan Minaj's special on Netflix, Homecoming King. Oh, so good. Um, so, so good. And, you know, I feel like he's just the one I, that's the one I've been thinking about most recently, but People like him and, you know, Mindy and Aziz, I just think it's really cool that they are pioneering this whole movement of having more representation for Southeast Asian people in film and TV. For me, when I first saw that, I know that's more than one person, but, you know, when I first saw the immigrant episode of Master of None, I actually didn't even realize until that point that I hadn't seen representation of myself on screen. I know that seems... You know, you should know that you haven't seen that, but when you're not expecting to ever see it, you just, you don't think you'll, it'll ever be there. So for sure, I was just like, this is so crazy. This is like my family in a lot of ways and people I know. And it's the same with Hasan Minhaj and now Mindy Kaling is working on a new show and it's, it's kind of featuring almost like a younger version of herself and about her upbringing. And that's super cool. There's going to be shows out there for young people to watch that, have Indian people in it. And that's yeah. just so cool. It's really inspiring to see people that look like you, that feel like you, that has the same background as you on the screen where you're like, whoa, like other people have felt the same way as me or had the same issues or gone through the same things. I think it's amazing. And Hassan Minaj, for sure, when I saw his stuff for the first time, I saw his comedy special um, live and I said, wow, this is the oh, first time awesome. I felt like I like like someone who looks like me is up on stage making the same jokes that I would make to my friends. You know what I mean? Like, yes. it's just like, wow, exactly. this is so cool. I, it was an amazing yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's so crazy. It's like, you're really, there is somebody else out there who feels that way or yeah. expresses things in that way. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, another question for you is, is there a movie or book that's had the most impact on you that you can recall? Well, I think there there are things that I've seen recently that I really, really loved. And then there's things that I saw when I was younger that impacted me. But I would say recently I saw uh, The Farewell, um, which was directed by Lulu Wang. Aquafina. It's with Aquafina. I love Aquafina. And I absolutely love this movie. I, even though it was about the Chinese-American experience and, you know, she goes to China and uh, you kind of see from her perspective what that's like. And I know, you know, I, it's, it's just, there's a lot of parallels between that and the, the Southeast Asian American experience. And I just thought it was also so cool to see Aquafina as an actress. You know, she came from doing these awesome, like, rap, gritty rap videos and, you know, just being from Queens. And she didn't come from, you know, a young age acting. And, and now here she is not only doing comedy stuff, which is kind of how she got her start, but also 
doing dramatic movies and doing an amazing job at it, which for me is very inspiring because I also don't have an acting background and I find it to be, you know, she's creating a path for people that could exist. And so in many ways I found that was amazing. I, I also love the soundtrack. It was really beautiful. And um, I just loved that movie. Yeah, it is. I haven't seen it, but my brother and my, my really good friend have seen it and they said you have to watch it. So it's absolutely yeah. on my list. Yeah, it's also funny. There's just all these elements to it. It's, it's really good. Yeah, I'll definitely check it out. Um, cool. This question I love, and I loved, I'm excited to hear your answer. Um, if you had to give an up-and-coming South Asian or Southeast Asian person in your field who wants to jump into producing or creating or being part of shows or anything like that, what advice would you give them and why? I would say uh, my biggest piece of advice based on my experience of doing this would be try to let go of seeking external validation because I think that's a lot of the reason why we make a lot of choices when we're younger. We want to do something that our parents are going to be proud of or that, you know, other people in our communities will understand and think is impressive. I think that's like a common Asian American thing, wanting to fulfill, you know, and especially when we, we do have immigrant parents, a lot of us, and you want to, to show that you took advantage of opportunities around you. And I think it can be hard though, if you have a different goal in mind and it's a, if it's a goal that people around you don't necessarily understand, even if you're doing a great job and you're making tons of progress and you're working super hard, just because other people don't understand what it is you're doing and what the industry looks like, you might not get that validation from them. Maybe not ever um, until you're doing, you know, like on the red carpet at the Oscars or something that everyone knows about. And so if you're doing things and just being like, oh, you know, I felt that way in the beginning where I was like, the script is done. Now the show, we're releasing episode one. Like, what's the response going to be? Episode two, what's the response going to be? And after a while, it's like, you know what? Don't worry so much about what the direct response is going to be from people you know every single time. You know, people are also busy with their own lives. They don't understand the context necessarily. So asking for that external validation, it's never going to ever be at the level you want it to be. So try to drown that out mm -hmm. and just focus on what you want to do and, and not worry so much about other people. I love that. That is absolutely the correct because especially coming from our community, you know, you said that earlier in the interview where you're like, I wanted the job that had the biggest name to get that external validation yeah. that people be like, Oh wow, you were for Dior, you were for Bloomingdale's. But quieting mm -hmm. that moment allows you to create the most beautiful stuff because you're like, I don't have to answer to anyone else. I don't have to answer to my community. I can just be me. I can produce and create and right. do things that ma matter to me, which ultimately will honestly give you the best work and people want to see that. Yeah, exactly. And that's a whole journey and it took me a long time. I, I don't expect people to, you know, follow this immediately if they're only in college and they want some, you know, ideas of what to do next and they follow a path. It's fine. It's okay. It took me years to come to this conclusion, but now I'm so much happier thinking it just doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. It really doesn't. And you'll never be able to easily explain your own venture without getting tons of questions. And that's just how it is. But I think it's very worth it. Yeah, for sure. Hashtag worth it. <laughs> Hashtag it's worth it. Yeah. Um, wow. <laughs> this has been an amazing interview, Pooja. Thank you for your candor. Thank you for your honesty. And just some of the stories are, are going to stick with me for, for a long time. Um, oh. any, any final ask for the audience? Anything you'd like to leave them with before we close? Yeah, well, if they would like to check out the series Amsterdam Ave, you can find it on our YouTube channel, which is called Fountain Avenue Productions, or you can just search Amsterdam Ave on YouTube. It comes up. And if you like it, uh, the best way to support us at this stage is to subscribe on YouTube, to comment on the videos, like the videos. Um, there are six episodes. There's a lot that goes on after the two of them switch places and just get used to their new circumstances and new countries. I think there's a lot to relate to for a lot of different types of people, but we love to hear from, from people what they think. So people like to comment, share with their friends and we're on social media as well. Uh, Amsterdam Ave dot series on Instagram and we're on Twitter, Facebook, we're, we're everywhere. Um, so I would just say, yeah, if people like the show and, you know, we also had a 90% female crew for our show. So 
female empowerment is a very big goal for us and a big aspect of the production company. So if, you know, it's great to support female filmmakers and especially women of color, you know, we will take all the support we can get. Yeah, for sure. And for all our listeners, we'll be linking um, all the things Pooja has mentioned on our website and, and the newsletter and stuff. So be for sure to check it out there. But Pooja, been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Best of luck with everything. And we can't wait to see you soar and be a part of the, the journey. Thank you so much for having me. Hey guys, it's Samir again. If you'd like to hear more amazing stories on South Asians around the world, please check out SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com and subscribe to our email list. That's SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com. Thanks a lot and see you next time.